from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll learn about an effort to get more kids into state-funded driver's education courses. Then we'll remember James Hall, a noted lawyer and former head of the Milwaukee NAACP who fought for civil rights in Milwaukee. The common victim of profiling uh, happens to be African-Americans and other minorities to some degree, but particularly African-American boys and, and African-American men. We'll speak to one of just two female master cheesemakers in Wisconsin. We always want to be improving. We want to make great cheese. I mean, after all, we have America's Dairy Limit on license plate. That should mean something, right? So it's, it's a neat dairy state of mind, I think. Plus, tell you what new restaurants are opening in the city and which ones are closing. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. It's been 20 years since Wisconsin has offered state-funded driver's education courses, but that's about to change. Last month, Governor Tony Evers signed a bill that will allow over 10,000 high school students who are part of the Federal Free and Reduced Lunch Program to receive driver's ed grants. Common Ground is a nonpartisan group of community members that led the effort. Jennifer O'Hare is the group's executive director. WUWM's Eddie Morales speaks with her about how the organization worked to make drivers' education more accessible and fight reckless driving. What is Common Ground's involvement in advocating for this bill? We are a collective of 46 different member organizations. And what we're trying to do is, as everyday sort of regular folks, come together and have some ability to impact things that are affecting our lives, like reckless driving, like kids not being able to get their driver's licenses, things like that. So we actually ran a five-month listening campaign in 2021, where we trained our folks and had them go out and listen to people in their congregations, their neighborhoods, their families, their workplaces, about the things that were putting pressures on their families and the folks that they cared about. And reckless driving was far and away the number one concern. I mean, we heard stories about older folks who don't go out at night anymore um, because they're too scared. And we heard stories from younger folks that are you know, getting ready to go on the roads and being nervous about being out there with other people who are not following the rules of the road. And so coming out of that, it was very clear that our people wanted to do something about reckless driving. It was something that was putting a lot of stress and pressure on everyone. And so we started researching how could we contribute something to this because a lot of folks, a lot of groups are working on this problem. And as we began researching, we found out that driver's ed hadn't been funded since 2004 and that kids here in Milwaukee, even though MPS has tried to bring driver's ed back to some extent, MPS wasn't able to meet the demand of MPS students. And you know where does that leave choice and charter kids? Um, there was a little bit available through Milwaukee Rec, but not nearly enough to meet the demand. And kids can't really afford the private programs. We were hearing they were costing between like $400 and $600. 
So we identified that issue and then we dug in some more in terms of how could we come up with a solution. So at Common Ground, we always go to folks in power with what we think the solution should be and not just go to them and say, this is a problem, could you fix it? And so I think that's a big part of what makes us successful as we continue the research into um, the solution phase and figure out what's the solution and how are we going to pay for it and who, who could do that? And initially, we identified um, auto insurance companies as a potential source of funding because they obviously have money and they have a big interest in kids learning how to drive properly. So we partnered with Mayor Johnson to go to the three biggest auto insurance companies here, American Family, Progressive, and State Farm, and asked them to meet with us about our idea and you know, would they consider funding. So what the insurance companies did instead is sent us to Andy Franken, who is the head of their trade association, the Wisconsin Insurance Alliance, and I think they basically told Andy, you know, work with Common Ground. We think this is a good idea. You take care of this, make this happen with them. And so by working with Andy and the um, insurance companies, we were able to get this through the state legislature because we were able to make it a bipartisan effort. I do really want to, in addition to the Wisconsin Insurance Alliance, lift up the role that Bob Donovan played. He was very vocal in terms of reckless driving. He's also a Republican who is very geographically close to Milwaukee and was looking for a way to have his initiatives around reckless driving be more comprehensive, not just be punitive. And so this was really an opportunity when we brought it to him and asked him if he would sponsor it and champion it in the assembly and through the budget process for him to have a more well-rounded approach to tackling reckless driving. Can you talk a little bit about the amount of money? So $6 million, how many people that potentially help and who will qualify for that? And this is a, a yearly budget, right? Six, $6 million per year, which would be around how many students? So the fiscal estimate from the state, it delineates out how many kids they think it will serve and explains how they figure that out. But they think it's going to serve between about 10,000 and 13,000 students. Can you talk a little bit about how the grant program will potentially work and who is eligible for it? So DOT has rulemaking authority. So they're going to, now that it's passed and signed into law, they're going to set up what the process is going to be. And it's my understanding that the money will start flowing and the program should be up and running by July 1, 2024. So another, another great part of this is that we were able to work with high school students and involve them in this whole process. Um, a number of them have spoken publicly on this issue. And the last leg of this journey, we had two students from Pathways High School, Khalil Stewart and Jamoris Torres Curran, who came with us and testified in front of the assembly, came back again, testified in front of the Senate, and then went with us for the signing. 
So that was really fun to see them get to speak on this issue that's so, um, it's so central to their lives. And as Jamoris was explaining, like he's, he said, I never thought this would happen. And for yeah. them to see it happen was, was really great. Kids who are trying to do the right thing, like they're, you know, trying to do well in school, they're trying to be there every day, have a job, have extracurriculars, all these things we tell kids to do in order to go to college and be successful. And some of them are driving illegally to do it because their families can't afford driver's ed. Again, I appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Jennifer O'Hare is the executive director of Common Ground. She spoke with WUWM's Eddie Morales. James Hall, an attorney and former president of the Milwaukee branch of the NAACP, has passed away. Hall is being remembered as a staunch civil rights defender who fought for underrepresented and underserved people in Milwaukee for decades. Hall died at the age of 69 after a battle with cancer. Throughout the years, Hall has been a guest on WUWM. Today, we'll listen back to a conversation with Hall and the late Eric Vaughn. Former Lake Effect host Mitch Tyke spoke to them back in 2012, after Trayvon Martin was shot and killed by George Zimmerman. Mitch Tyke speaks first, followed by Eric Vaughn. The Trayvon Martin case, uh, this was when it started, a story of a city in Florida, a neighborhood watch program, a Florida-specific law that seemed to allow a shooting to take place in these circumstances, and, and a few other factors. Why, though, do you think it has sparked this national debate? Why are we sitting here in Milwaukee and talking about it and the ramifications uh, more than a month later? I, I think the big word is justice. Um, uh, we, we, you have a situation in Florida where, uh, for the better part of a month, uh, people watched and waited for authorities in Florida to take what they thought was appropriate action against a man who has had very little in the way of justification for the act he committed, which claimed the life of this 17-year-old boy. And authorities there shirked their responsibility in the view of those people who have watched uh, first the police department, then the prosecutor. Uh, Everybody kind of turned their back on, on what would have been the, the just path to take in this, what would have been the typical path to take. And I think for African-Americans watching this uh, from Sanford, Florida, and anywhere else in this country, they're looking at a situation that we've been once again reminded of in this country where justice is not followed through or carried out uh, for us the way it is for others. I think additionally, it's... Um disturbing, unfortunate, even shameful, I would say, if you consider the fact that this is 2012. If you turned the clock back 100 years to 1912, you would have had uh, similar things going on. You know, that was shortly after the Civil War and Reconstruction. There were lynchings and killings, and African Americans at that time were subjected to things like this without any recourse. It's... uh, 
surprising or disturbing or shameful, I'd say, that uh, now a hundred years later you have a similar type thing. And it, it, the fact should be noted too that in that county, in Seminole County, Florida, uh, that's the county where uh, uh, black, black families were burned out of their homes in 1920 just for trying to vote. So there's a history of racism in that county, clearly such that if the facts had been the other way around, there's no doubt that there would have been an arrest and charges brought. Uh, that's not to prejudge uh, what happens in this case, but to say that the facts indicate clearly that justice would require an arrest and um, you know, more than what's happened. Well, let me ask you this. The, the, the law that is at the center of the, the controversy in Florida specifically is it set up such that uh, that we should not be surprised that that this is playing out in this way? I mean, it seems like uh, the way that law works, it would lead one to have this conversation in the public arena as opposed to within the courtroom. Well, I, I think that the law is is has is has come into question now. The legislator in Florida, who the state legislator who was most responsible for pushing this law through the uh, Florida Assembly. And he himself said, this is not the way the law was designed to work. People want to be safe and protected in their homes. That's where these laws come from. In Wisconsin, we've got the Castle Doctrine. In Florida, you've got the Stand, stand, your, stand, ground. stand your Ground Law. But, but the, the question that arises in this case is, what ground was George Zimmerman standing? The story, as George Zimmerman has told it, has any number of holes in it. And that's been pointed to uh, by, by many people who have watched this case evolve over the last several weeks. So the stand your ground law is one thing, and that law may need to be looked at you know, for a lot of reasons. But in this case, it doesn't seem to me at least that stand your ground, castle or anything else protects George Zimmerman from the crime that it appears that he's committed. Exactly. In addition to uh, what Eric just said, I mean, all the facts of this, meaning from the, the fact that he was on the phone talking to his girlfriend a few minutes earlier, there are the, there's the, there are the two eyewitnesses, the ladies who lived across the lawn who heard a scuffle and then uh, went outside and, and they heard the screams. And we've heard the, video, the audio of the screams. It sounds like a young boy, but that's for court or someone to decide. But they say that they saw Zimmerman getting up from on top of him. They heard a gunshot and, and saw that. As Eric said, we all have seen the video of Zimmerman getting out of the car. All of this is such that it, it flies in the face of the subjective um, assertion by Zimmerman that I was being attacked. The problem with these laws, the Castle Law as well, it puts in the hands of the, the shooter uh, just his, it's usually a male, his subjective opinion saying I was being attacked and it was reasonable for me to shoot. The victim is then dead. So uh, that's the problem. And now some 34 states, I think, have passed variations of either stand your ground or castle laws and so forth. Those laws, coupled with the increased availability of guns, like in Wisconsin, the concealed carry, just to put more guns on the street, it creates a, a bunker mentality when you combine that with the fact of the huge wealth gap that exists in this country and that's increasing, 
it's uh, the view of us and the other, and it feeds into that bunker mentality, and it doesn't bode well. And uh, Eric Vaughn, you were talking about this idea that uh, that we all want to feel safe in in our own homes or or in our own ground, as uh, as the case might be in Florida. And yet, there are these uh, there are these laws that are in place at the same time, the concealed carry laws out there. Given the existence of these multiple laws, is there a conversation or or something about guns that we have not had that we need to have at this point? I, I think we have the conversation every day. I think it happens in state legislators, uh, legislatures. It happens in the public square. It certainly happens in, uh, in, in boardrooms. I mean, there's huge money in the sale and, and licensing of guns and permits for guns. I think that the the louder voices have been uh, those of the NRA and other organizations that advocate for there to be greater accessibility of guns, whether we talk handguns, rifles, uh, use for sport, use for safety. We have all kinds of reasons uh, in the Constitution notwithstanding that, that Americans should have a right to carry a weapon. And, and, and now we have protections under the law that allow people to fire these guns almost indiscriminately. When you have these kinds of laws, when you have, first of all, the availability of guns, and we don't do a really good job in this country of determining who should and shouldn't have guns, it's all based on who is, uh, who has a right to carry a gun as opposed to who is right to have a gun. Um, I think you, you, it lends itself to these kinds of incidents that while we know that under both of these laws, the Castle Law and Stand Your Ground, at some point the shooter has to prove that he or she was in some threat of danger to him or his property, which seems to be rather flimsy in terms of what the evidence is that one has to present beyond saying that I felt like I was in danger. James is the lawyer here. He can explain this better than I can. Yes, if I may chime in on that. Under the, just here in Wisconsin, under the old law, before the Castle Law, under the old law, it was that you had the right to meet force with force, to meet um, force with the type of force you feel you were being threatened with. So in the case, as Eric just explained it, even a, a homeowner would not have the right to automatically just shoot someone. If, if a homeowner felt threatened and with someone who had a gun uh, and the person is threatened, the, then you would have a right in that case to meet force with the equal force. But by, um, by changing these laws to the point where the shooter now has no uh, requirement, as in stand your ground, uh, it's just the subjective view of the shooter that he feels threatened, or the castle law, Again, the shooter doesn't have to take the time to assess the threat or whatever. It, um, it leads to these types of results. I think it's important to also note that the underlying factor, again, of race in these cases. It's interesting that in uh, 2010, the latest year that there are federal statistics out on hate crimes, although African Americans comprise only roughly 13 percent of the population, African-Americans are 70% of the victims of hate crimes. So it just tells something about the existing attitudes, both in Trayvon Martin, 
in Bo Morrison, it's important again to note the victim was a mixed race individual. It says something about where we are as a society in terms of attitudes, and um, you know, it's a major problem. There are apparently people out there who would say that a hoodie sweatshirt is equivalent to a threat. Typically, uh, we know there are many shootings that occur for various reasons. Um, there may be homicides generally and, and or whatever, but not in the context of the stand your ground and castle law. In terms of the castle law and stand your ground laws that we are talking about, it's commonly blacks who are being profiled, meaning it's not often the case that African Americans are standing around and saying, there's a white person, he looks suspicious, he has on um, a sweatshirt, or we, you know, I'm going to shoot him because of that. Meaning the same type of profiling doesn't tend to commonly occur. The common victim of profiling uh, happens to be African Americans and other minorities to some degree, but particularly African American boys and, and African American men. So, you know, so that's part of, um, I think, the response to when you're saying this happening in reverse. You know, you, the bunker mentality is really a gated community mentality of a group of people saying these other people, you know, they are the other. And it's basically, if you're African American, or to a certain extent other minorities if you're poor or appear to be poor. And, um, you know, that's the profile. That was James Hall speaking with Mitch Tyke back in 2012. You also heard from Eric Vaughn. Hall passed away on January 1st. Vaughn passed away in 2016. In about 15 minutes, we'll hear from one of just two female master cheesemakers in Wisconsin. But first, we'll learn about some of the newest restaurants that have been opened here in Milwaukee and some old favorites that have closed. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. It's the start of a new year and a great time to check out some new restaurants around the city. As the dining editor for On Milwaukee, Lori Frederick always has her eye on what's happening in Milwaukee's food scene. She joins me now to talk about some of the recent restaurant openings and closings. Lori, thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure, Joy. Uh, So as with every time we talk about openings and closings, uh, there are a number of restaurants uh, that were beloved that have left. There are a lot of really interesting places that have opened up. I think uh, usually we talk about closings first and then we talk about openings. Why don't don't we start with some some happy things here? Let's flip it around. Start with the openings. There's a lot of different places that have opened. We're going to just talk about 
a few of them, but this first one uh, sounds very interesting to me. It is in an old pharmacy. Is that right? Yes, yes. It is the Fitzgerald Pharmacy. I think they've been around in Whitefish Bay on Silver Spring for at least 65 years. They were well known for classic things. You know, they're soda counter, sandwich counter type of a place. They did close and sat vacant for a bit, came under new ownership and reopened in 2022. They debuted with like an ice cream fountain type concept serving Purple Door ice cream. And now they've officially debuted a full cafe concept. The menu is still sort of being finalized. It's kind of in a soft opening phase. But in the next couple of weeks, things are going to settle out with it. This is sort of a recreation of this nostalgic soda fountain sandwich counter, but with a really modern edge. For sure. Now, the next restaurant that we're going to talk about, uh, there have been a few restaurants over the past few years with this word in the title. And every time I'm always interested to know why. This is The Wolf on yes. Broadway. The Wolf on Broadway. So this is the sister restaurant of Uncle Wolfie's Breakfast Tavern. Okay. All and right. Uncle Wolfie's is, of course, a, a derivation of Wolfgang Schaefer, one of the owners. It's, it's his name. Um there's a long story behind that, um, but I think I think if you've met Wolfgang, you will understand how he would make the best Uncle Wolfie. <laughs> you know, who would invite you over and make you, you know, make you some eggs and let you, you know, drink a little bit of beer with your, <laughs> with your breakfast. So this is a sister restaurant, and this is located on the ground floor of the Kin Hotel downtown. It's kind of playing into that whole boutiquey model that. The interior is very warm. It's a little bit um, mid-century modern diner style in terms of maybe decor, but really kind of comfortable seating. Um, it's decorated in warm, like peaches and sage green. Um, it has floor-to-ceiling windows on kind of, let's say, it would be the south side and the west side. So beautiful, beautiful light. And the menu is, much as Uncle Wolfie's is fun to us, some classics, this is fun twists on classics, but Kristen Schwab, along with Val Bertram, they're the chefs at the helm. And Kristen in particular has a background of family from Indonesia. And so there's a lot of inflection from her, her Indonesian background um, on this menu. You know, you'll find things like a salt and pepper fish sandwich, which is delicious, probably why the first thing I thought of, and kind of a, a great take on shrimp cocktail that is maybe eats more like a ceviche that incorporates kind of some spice and a little bit of avocado. There's a little bit of something for everyone, as long as you don't mind that they played a little bit with the flavors. All right. Uh, now, the next spot that we're going to talk about, it is a new restaurant, mm -hmm. but what makes this place interesting is really that it's based on, or the recipes are based on, an old restaurant. Yes, absolutely. So back in the in the 80s, the Northwest Side had a very popular Chinese-American restaurant um, called Yenching. And in the style of many restaurants at the time from the 70s and 80s, it had that opulent interior um, with a red and gold decor. Most people who've lived through that era can sort of envision what I'm talking about. And they were they were very popular. Um, the dishes that they brought to the restaurant, they just had a distinctive flavor profile. And um, and they were around for quite a long time, but they, they closed and sold in the mid-'80s. In the meantime, the two sons went off and kind of got more experience in the restaurant world on their own. At least one of them got some experience with um, – 
I think it was Panda Express, some of those other things. And now they've brought, they've decided, that the father and his two sons have decided to bring back Yenching, only in a very modern format. So they have opened Yenching Express at the Mequon Pavilions. I'm in Mequon, and it is a strictly, pretty much a strictly carryout spot, but you will find many of the most popular dishes that were on the menu at Yenching. Um, the sizzling rice soup is the one that everyone is like, do they have that? <laughs> um, that and the the cashew chicken um, seem to be what the internet has been getting the most excited about. But they opened fairly recently. There have literally been lines out the door. Well, that does not happen with mm. every restaurant opening these days. For sure. Now, the final restaurant that we're going to talk about is in a space that I think a lot of people will be familiar with. It's where uh, Lazy Susan's was, uh, and it's uh, right in the heart of Bayview. Yes, and this is in one of this is in one of those locations where you might miss it if you drove past too fast. But was popularized, you know, and Lazy Susan really brought people to this space which is really not far if you know where the Collectivo is at the hub of, of Bayview. This is about two blocks south of there. So um, Heirloom started as a food truck, a very popular food truck. Um, the Heirloom owners had every intention of having a restaurant initially. And in fact, they had signed a lease on a restaurant or were very, very close to signing a lease on a restaurant in um, March of 2020. We all remember what happened then. They backtracked on their on their plans, thinking maybe this isn't the best time to start our first restaurant, and ended up surprisingly opting for a food truck, which was not not really in the plan. It turns out they loved their food truck, and at one point they were like, maybe we're going to just going to keep. We love the the mobile aspect, you know, being able to control our hours, not having to be in the same spot all the time, being accessible for events. So maybe we won't do the restaurant after all. But come Lazy Susan going up for sale, um, I think it was an opportunity that they decided they really needed to to pursue. Um, so they took their food truck fare, which was not your average food truck fare. Um, it was things like steamed mussels and wine, you know, and hand pulled burrata like salads, things you wouldn't expect necessarily to be on a food truck. So they have moved into that space as of late this summer, and they are serving up a menu of pretty much all the food truck favorites. So so folks who are a fan of Heirloom before will most likely be a fan of the restaurant. Now uh, we're getting to the less, the less fun part of mm. uh, this list. <laughs> These are closings. The first one is a space that I used to go to actually all the time. I know that they'd uh, switched to small plates more recently, but Engine Company number three, or I should say a small plates uh, brunch, and that's usually how I ended up there. Yes. <laughs> and I think if I remember correctly, they had some of that, at least some options like that when they first opened in the beginning, maybe moved away from it. But this is a space, though, that everybody has known as a brunch spot or breakfast and lunch spot for almost nine years. It was by the owners of La Miranda. And I can't say this is fully unexpected. Peter Sandroni and his wife, Sonia, work really, really hard with their two spaces. They they spend a lot of time there. And they, they also have a family together, daughters. And they've decided to convert this to ditch the brunch service and open the space up for events. Now, this is a beautiful old fire station. So it has been it has been a popular spot for events for quite a while. And I think it's probably smart on their part. 
But I think they're really trying to get back to spend more time together as a family. Um, and that's not a balance you find much in the restaurant industry. So more power to them. <laughs> our, our loss is brunch, you know, um, but it's, it's probably for good. Now, uh, Firefly Tosa, this is a, a place that's been around for 20 years. And it will still exist under the gracious catering moniker, which has been simultaneously existing along with Firefly. And um, the owners of Firefly, two sisters who are just their aesthetic sense, has made all of their projects and including their catering um, to be really, really, really memorable. They're very, very stylish. So every experience at Firefly Tosa always felt very special. For those who remember back, Firefly started as Bijonda and subsequently, like a few years later, changed the name. And the interesting thing about this closing is that, you know, we've seen a lot of closings. For sure, Joy, as kind of we've been tracking these for the last couple of years. You know, some of them are retirements. Some of them are just general, like, hardship based on um, residual challenges from the pandemic. Uh, but this is an interesting situation in that their landlord simply has other plans for their lease. Apparently, the story is they were going to renew long term, maybe for another 10 years. They were told no, that they could not stay in the space. So this is not a choice on the part of the owners and not necessarily a matter of, oh, we're struggling or, you know, worried about staffing or costing. So we'll see what happens, you know, if they decide they might tackle another restaurant. But if nothing else, um, folks can definitely have experiences through them, through their gracious, gracious catering. Sure. Now, uh, another space that it, it's not a similar restaurant, but also uh, has been around for almost 20 years. This is Balzac. Uh, we were talking about it a bit before the interview. You said it's one of the first wine bars in the Milwaukee area. Yeah, two decades ago. Milwaukee didn't really know what to do with wine bar. <laughs> we still were very much a beer town. But Balzac came in and really um, provided this really cozy environment. Um, small plates were also what they were known for. So you could grab a bottle of wine and a snack, you know, like over a happy hour. They had great happy hours with charcuterie boards and um, different things that were really affordable. Or you could sit, you know, and eat your way through a whole meal of small plates. They were known for being a, a date night spot, partially because you had you had some control over how much you spent um, small plates are nice that way. You know, some people don't like them because they say, oh, I have to spend so much money to get a full meal. But this was the sort of place where you could go and have a couple of small plates and actually be satiated. So it was popular for dates. It was also just cozy and warm, not too big. They had a beautiful, almost secret gardeny looking patio out in the back. The owners just, you know, they've been in the business for a very, very long time. And um, sometimes the end is just the end. Well, Lori, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect, sharing all of these different restaurants, openings and closings. Uh, as always, we appreciate it. Thanks, Joy. Lori Frederick is the dining editor for On Milwaukee, and she's a regular contributor to Lake Effect. At wuwm.com, you can find our previous conversations with her. And we want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find the link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. 
Coming up next, we'll learn more about the craft of cheesemaking from one of just two female master cheesemakers here in Wisconsin. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Cheese. We love it here in Wisconsin, and the numbers back that up. If Wisconsin was a country, we would rank fourth in the world in cheese production, behind the rest of the U.S., Germany, and France. Wisconsin also has the only cheesemaker program outside of Europe, and of the master cheesemakers, there are only two women. Pam Hodgson of Sartori Cheese in Plymouth, Wisconsin, is one of them. Hodgson's family have been farmers in the area since the 1840s, and the legacy of cheesemaking goes back to her grandfather. She joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski to share how one job at a local cheese plant led her to the rank of master cheesemaker. My pathway to cheesemaking, it does have a couple of twists and turns. Growing up, I wanted to be a dairy farmer like my parents. Uh, it did turn out that my maternal grandfather was a very accomplished cheesemaker, but when I was growing up, I knew him as grandpa. He was already retired. So my, my journey to become a dairy farmer took me to University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I studied cows. Great experience. And Early on in my husband and I, uh, our farming career, we were just starting out. We needed a little bit more money to fuel the dream. So there was an opening at a cheese plant in the area for a quality assurance supervisor. I took the job, and uh, once I was in the plant, I just fell in love with cheese making. Uh, I think it's a little bit of a joke on our family in that I had no intention of becoming a cheese maker, but Like my maternal grandfather, it turned out to be a fantastic career for me. What were some of the things that you were immediately drawn to when you took that first job? I loved working in the cheese plant when I started in 1991 because, one, there's always something going on. We ran milk around the clock, and when we weren't making cheese, we were cleaning the equipment that we used. So there was always something going on. I liked the satisfaction of at the end of the day, we had a cooler full of cheese that we had made. We could see the, the results of our hard work. And then cheese making is challenging. Um, it's physically challenging. It, it, it can be very hard work depending on what job you're doing. It challenges a person intellectually. We always have to, as cheese makers, we have to listen to the process and make adjustments to the process based on what the milk is doing or what the curd is doing. It's not the same every day because our major component milk changes a little bit every day seasonally depending on stage of lactation, environment, what cows are being fed. So there's always something to challenge a person. And then all of my cheesemaking experiences have been in, in plants where it was a team working together. And I really thrive and enjoy that. I enjoy working with people and seeing people develop and become more accomplished cheesemakers or more accomplished in whatever it is they want to do. And the practice of cheesemaking itself, it's referred to as an art typically, but for you it's both an art and a science and not one or the other, right? Correct. I think probably the right term would be craft because there's there's a lot of skill, there is science, but there's also a lot of science that we haven't yet discovered. 
as an accomplished cheesemaker, will always pay close attention to the process and make adjustments as needed. And then kind of related to that, as I think about cheesemaking, how my maternal grandfather knew it compared to how I, I know it, over the years we've been able to harness technology to help us be more consistent. But that technology doesn't replace the eye of, of the cheesemaker. It doesn't replace paying attention to the process and making adjustments. What automation or technology does for us is it helps us be more consistent, but in itself it doesn't make us better. It takes the cheesemaker to be to make the cheese good or to make good cheese. And kind of related to that as well is technology on the farm. Um, in the, I don't know, 30-some years that I've been making cheese, I'm just impressed on how much the quality of milk has improved during that time frame. And it's because we have hardworking family farms who are, who are really dedicated to producing high-quality milk. And they, too, are harnessing technology to help their operations become better, to make their milk be better. Exactly. And on the note of how things have shifted and changed and improved, there's obviously so many elements that go into making cheese. So we're going to focus on one of the beginning stages, which is starter bacteria. So can you explain what that is and the importance of it? Yes. So as cheesemakers in general, uh, there's a lot of different ways to make cheese. But um, when we think about cheddar or Parmesan, lots of cheeses, we are using starter bacteria, which ferment the lactose in the milk, which brings the pH down, uh, which if we think about the ancient art of cheese making, that was really important from a, a food preservation standpoint. Um, so we're, we're managing a biological process as cheesemakers. We also will add starters. The purpose isn't to convert lactose into lactic acid. They work down the line as the cheese is aging and they'll create some of the flavors that we we absolutely love in cheese because they're breaking down the proteins. It's a very interconnected process to partner with bacteria to make great cheese. I love the way you phrase that, partner with bacteria. Yes, and of course we want certain bacteria. We want the ones that create the flavors we want. Uh, There's plenty of bacteria out there that are safe to consume, but they don't make the flavors we want. And then, then there's the, the culprits out there that from a food safety standpoint, we absolutely build our process around preventing their, their inclusion in our milk. Right. So with starter bacteria, how has this element developed or changed over time compared to, say, when your grandfather was using starters? Yes. So when my grandfather was making cheese, he did a process which was called mothering the culture. So he would have some culture, he would grow it in small batches, and then he would grow that again. You could think of it a little bit like a process of sourdough bread, right? You're keeping back some of your starter to make the next batch of starter. And at that point, he would not have known what strains were in his starter, and he probably did not have just one strain in his starter as well. If we compare that to what we do now, is uh, now we're, we're using defined strains where we, we know what that bacteria is. We're monitoring it to make sure that it, its performance doesn't change over time. Growing up, I'd hear stories about how uh, somebody's starter had failed and they'd come to, to George Hintz to get his starter. Um, and, you know, cheesemakers would help each other out and 
we also enter contests and we'll compete really hard and we you know we all want to win that contest but when the contest is over we're also genuinely happy for whoever did win so it's a really neat community to be part of the Wisconsin cheese making scene one thing that I imagine, say, your grandfather had to deal with was a lack of automation, like things when it comes to heat control or other processes in the cheese making stages. Are those good basic building blocks that allow you to be more creative in the process down the road when you are developing cheese? Absolutely. Um, growing up, I would hear stories of pretty much how much my grandfather hated his wood-fired boiler because he had inconsistent steam control. So he'd be fighting that instead of focusing on on cheese making. Today, we have very good control of our temperatures. And that's really important because as we work to create American originals, uh, cheeses that will make Wisconsin proud, we need to have the control so that if we invent this this great cheese and it's just fantastic, we have to be able to replicate it because each time a consumer comes and, and buys this piece of Wisconsin cheese. They want it to be the same goodness as it was last time. So automation really allows us to do that, but automation does not replace the skill and observation of, of a, a cheesemaker. If anything, does it make the challenge of standing out even more satisfying? So when we think about cheesemaking, it, it's an ancient art. I mean, it goes back millennials, right? So and around the world, there's just thousands of different kinds of cheeses. So if, if, we, if we look at that and we're like, wow, we want to create American original. And that's, that's a really big focus at Sartori. We, we want to create American originals. Um, we'll look to anyone around the world for inspiration, but we, we don't want to copy somebody else's great cheese. We want to make our own. And, and even something as common as a cheddar, we'll put our own signature on it. So if you just look at it from that standpoint it, it is kind of kind of daunting to think about well we want to create something new that somebody else hasn't had but what kind of grounds me on all that is the creativity process what i find in being creative is i get very balanced on right brain and left brain activities so part of me is like okay if i look at this process and how traditionally this process has been done well, if I do what everybody else has done, I'm going to end up what everybody else already has. So how can I do it differently? And then the analytical part of me is looking at the data after we've made the cheese and, and made multiple vats of the cheese and understanding, well, if we make more acidity early in the process, what is the consequence later on in the finished product? Um, so, you know, as we talked earlier about falling in love with the process. I absolutely love this part, that freedom to be creative and then also the analytical opportunities that it provides for me. So yeah, it's a daunting challenge to come up with pleasing original cheeses, yet collectively Wisconsin cheesemakers are are up to the task. When you are experimenting on something new and taking note the aging process of cheese, when do you typically know that you're on to something? Well, that's a good question. I, I think um, our finance department would like me to know really, really quick. <laughs> but in reality, yeah, right. But but in reality, um, most of the cheeses at Sertori, we end up aging about a year before we really know if we have something or not. And that's kind of daunting, too, when you think about how many chances 
a person gets to get it right in their lifetime. If we look at our cervical parmesan, it's a cheese that we age a minimum of 20 months. I mean, yeah, you can get early reads, and we do take early reads. But when you think about developing a long-hold cheese, as a cheesemaker, it's pretty humbling because how many chances are you really going to get to optimize that cheese? I love hearing you talk about all these different elements that we as consumers often don't know about and the enjoyment you take out of it. With your career and elevating up to the rank of cheesemaster, what's a key lesson that you've learned either from your family of cheesemakers or just through your years in this career that you always keep in mind? Well, certainly I've, I've learned a lot. Um, one phrase that I use quite a bit to keep me grounded, I guess, um, very early on, I was working in a, a very male-dominated plant, and, and cheesemaking historically has been rather male-dominated. Um, so far, of all of the master cheesemakers from Wisconsin, there's only been two women who are named, who've been named master cheesemaker. Um, really excited that that's, that number is going to grow in the near future, but that's where we are today. So in general, early in, in my career, there's a lot of people who are super, super helpful, uh, very supportive. Um, but there were a few people, too, who actually kind of worked against me, who kind of made things harder. And I came across a Mark Twain quote that goes like this. Stay away from people who belittle your ambitions. Small people always do that. But the truly great ones make you believe that you, too, can become great. And in the beginning, hearing that quote, you know, it, it, it gave me strength. Today, when I hear that quote, it gives me a lot of humility because I have so much more to learn and so much more to accomplish as a cheesemaker. Yet it reminds me that it's important to be bringing up the next generation of cheesemakers, encouraging them, helping them find experiences to help them grow. And it's really, really, really humbling because if I do a good job of teaching people what I've learned, well, they're going to take that and they're going to learn things on their own, which means that I'm helping develop people who will be, be better than me. And, and I mean, that's how it should be. But um, I've also worked really, really hard to get to where I am. So it's very, very humbling. But, you know, it, it's also part of our Wisconsin dairy pride, right? We always want to be improving. We want to make great cheese. I mean, after all, we have America's Dairy Land at our license plate. That should mean something, right? So it's a neat dairy state of mind, I think. Absolutely. Well, I thank you for your contributions to not just our palates, but our dairy state of mind. And I've loved learning more about it. Thanks, Pam. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Pam Hodgson is a master cheesemaker at Sartori Cheese in Plymouth, Wisconsin. She spoke to Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski last September. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow's show is all about food. We'll talk with an indigenous chef who opened a new restaurant in Wisconsin last year. We'll also talk to two successful Milwaukee chefs and learn about the growing popularity of bubble tea. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. PR.